I was in a fraternity in college. Now, I get that this is probably a massive disappointment to some of you on multiple levels. The thought of your pastor being a frat boy either doesn't shock you at all or disappoints you or embarrasses you on some level, and frankly, none of that is probably unwarranted. Just take it as evidence that I was not as emotionally and spiritually mature as you apparently were at 19. Sarcastic wink. All right? I was actually president of my pledge class, and the sole reason for my election to that august position was my ability to charm and talk our way out of trouble when my pledge class was in trouble, which it seemed happened quite a bit under my leadership. I also had the ability in college to charm and talk my way into favorable situations, which is the answer to the question, how did a guy like Derek get someone like Julie to marry him? <laughs> Frankly, it was my ability to smooth talk my way into great situations and smooth talk my way out of bad ones that really was the hallmark of my 10 years as a student minister and the first 10 years of being a lead pastor. In fact, in my last church, there was a financial decision that had been kicked down the road for years. We were giving almost 20% of every dollar that came into our church to our denomination. And frankly, it was killing our ability to do basic ministry there in our community. So the financial team asked if I would be willing to run point with the church to make this decision that would be very difficult for some of our people to accept. And I said this, I'll never forget it. I said this word for word, and I want you to listen to the unabashed arrogance of, of what I said. I said to them, give me a microphone in five minutes and I'll win the room. And you know what? I did. I did. We made that decision. But that arrogant belief about my capacities was soon exposed at that church. Three men drew a following to themselves, began to whisper about my leadership and the worship minister's leadership and our mission to reach the underprivileged in our community with the gospel of Jesus. And no amount of charm or carefully crafted arguments could undo the damage that they were unleashing on our church. After deacon leadership and I confronted them, they gathered up 80 or so of their followers and they started their own church with the help of the local denominational employee who used this new church plant to fluff up his status with the denomination whose funding we had just cut. You see how things come full circle. Turns out that if the stakes were high enough, I actually couldn't charm or talk my way out of trouble. Now, before anyone gets too judgy about me for that, I feel like I need to point out here that I'm not alone in my capacity to overestimate my abilities, particularly in one key area of life, my battle, our battle with sin. Let's take pride, for instance, which is, of course, the root of the story about my life that I just shared with you. Well, simply deciding to be humble, fix it. Well, of course not, because I'll eventually become proud of how humble I'm becoming. Maybe for you it's not pride. 
Maybe you are a chronic overeater, the sin of gluttony. You diet for a while, but eventually you stress eat. Maybe you are a chronic overdrinker, the sin of drunkenness. You do sober January, but one drink with dinner becomes four in February. Maybe you are a chronic overbuyer, the sin of materialism. You use a bonus to pay off debt, but then use plastic to fund your vacation. And it's then that you realize that you can't, that I can't, obey my way out of sin. It always creeps back. And the passage that we are in today explains to us why. Find Romans chapter 7 in your copy of God's Word. It's in the New Testament. If you need to use your table of contents, please do so. But find Romans chapter 7 in your copy of God's Word. And in the verses that we will examine today, we are going to find two reasons why we can't obey our way out of sin. Here's the first one. Because the law, the standards that God gives us in His Word are good. The law is good. How good? Well, it's better than you ever could have imagined. So good that you'll never be able to follow the law out of your battle with sin. Let's see why. Look at verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Paul does here what he's been doing throughout this section of the book of Romans. He asks a rhetorical question. In this case, is the law sin? And he follows it up with a resounding no. Now, why is he asking this question in the first place? It doesn't seem to make any sense why anyone would ask that question out of context. But the context is he understands that his readers could have falsely concluded from something he just said in verse 5 that the law was actually evil, that the standards that God gives us in His Word work to our harm and therefore are evil. He said in verse 5 that our sinful desires are activated by the standards that God sets for us in His Word, and He wants us to know that this set of circumstances does not make the law sinful. So He begins to explain to us why these standards in God's Word are actually good for us. Follow along as I keep reading at the end of verse 7. He says, yet if it not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He says the law is good because it tells us what is right and wrong. It tells us what the standards of God are, and I think we would all agree that knowing the criteria by which we are being graded is known. I think it's good for us to have that information. But then, knowing that, this happens. Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment to not covet, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Did you catch that? He says, knowing the standard actually provoked the desire to break the standard. How does that work? Well, let's think about it on the practical level. Let's say you struggle with gluttony. If you are constantly thinking, don't eat the sandwich, you're constantly thinking about the sandwich. So what are you going to do eventually? Eat the sandwich. Let's say that you struggle with drunkenness and are constantly thinking, don't take a drink, 
You're constantly thinking about the drink. What are you eventually going to do? You're going to take the drink. If you struggle with the sin of materialism, you're constantly thinking, don't buy the shiny thing. And as a result, you're constantly thinking about what? The shiny thing. And you're eventually going to buy it. The standards God sets aren't bad. But sin seizes the opportunity to use that standard as its base of operations in our lives to actually bring about our disobedience to the standard that has been set for us. That's why he says this next, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, that can be misunderstood, so let me try to explain it using language that you may be accustomed to hearing in a church like ours. You may have heard the phrase, the age of accountability. That references the point in time that we believe as free agents morally, we believe we become accountable to God for our sin. And using that language... We aren't saying that we don't sin before that age comes. Anyone who has ever parented a small child knows this explicitly. They sin. They're good at it. They are naturally born sinners. But they don't understand at a certain point in their development that their sin is a rebellion against God's standards. Until they do, there is a sense in which they are alive, meaning there is a sense in which they're not personally guilty of violating the law. This is what Paul is referring to, that before the law I was alive. He's not saying before the law I didn't sin. He's saying before the law I didn't understand that what I was doing was rebellion against God. But the day will inevitably come when those children that we love know that to take a certain action or to adopt a certain attitude or to entertain a certain thought directly contradicts what God has commanded. In other words, there will come a time in their lives where they say, I know that God says this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And so, verse 10, the very commandment that promised to prove, uh, promised life proved to be death to me. Because why? Because it became the basis of operations to capture my attention and my thoughts and lead me against God. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. It told me it wasn't that big a deal to do this. And through it, killed me. Sin uses that which shows me the way to life, this is what Paul is saying, as a means of bringing me spiritual death. So he concludes this section by answering the question that he voiced in verse 7, stating essentially the obvious. He says in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It's not evil. It is not sin. This is where we see the extent of the law and its goodness, the standards that God sets for us. The standards of God are holy and righteous and good because God himself is holy 
and righteous and good. They are a reflection, these standards that we read in God's Word, they are a reflection of the character of God. So why can't we obey our way out of sin? Because we cannot will ourselves to become like God. The law is good, and the best it can ultimately do is show us that we are not God and that we will never be God in our lives. Why is that? Because of what Paul says in the next section. We can't obey our way out of sin because the law is good, and next, because I am not good. I am not good. He asked another rhetorical question in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, there is a lot going on in verse 13, so let's just slow down and make sure we can understand it. Paul is making sure that we understand that it was not the law, the standards of God, that made us guilty before God. It was sin, our sin, which makes us guilty before God. God's law shows us what is good and righteous and holy, and sin shows us what is bad and unrighteous and unholy. When compared to God's perfect standards, sin shows us how woefully we measure up to Him. The law shows sin to be sinful beyond human comprehension. Now, we don't typically think about that. When we are reading God's Word and we see the standards, we see, for instance, the Ten Commandments says, don't steal, and you say, I don't steal, so I'm pretty good. And it puffs us up. Sin is using the opportunity to point out that because you did this part of it well, you must not be that bad. But what, if you take the Word seriously, what it does is when you see failure after failure after failure after failure, as it shows you, that sin is sinful beyond human comprehension. So the question becomes, well, why do we do that? <laughs> I mean, if we understand it's that rotten and that terrible, why do we do that? Why can sin so easily use what is good as a platform to provoke me to do what is bad? And that's a question he'll answer throughout the rest of the section. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am flesh sold under sin. So he's stating something here. He's going to continue to unpack the idea that the law has one nature and I have another. So there are two natures at war against one another here. It is a reflection. The law is a reflection of God. I'm a reflection of sin. Let's keep reading. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. In summary, what he's saying is, in wanting to do the law, I'm actually showing that it's good. When, when I hear the standards that God has set, my desire is to do them, and therefore I am saying, even in my sinful state, that's good. Those things are not harm to me. 
But then, verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He says, there's something else at work in me. If I want to do that which I know to be good and I don't do it, there's something going on in here that I don't quite understand. And so he goes on to unpack that thought more fully. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh, in my body. That is key to hang on to through the rest of chapter 7. He's, he's talking about in his, in his physical existence, nothing good dwells in him. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. Paul is not saying that he's not personally responsible for his sin. He's not saying the devil made me do it. He's saying that in this body there is something at work in me that that constantly pulls me away from that which I know is good and that I know is right to do that which is willful rebellion against God. He's saying that every effort to obey his way out of sin fails because he is bad at the cellular level. He is a sinful creature. Now, the debate over this passage among academics concerns whether Paul is talking about his pre-Christian life, in other words, is he talking about before he came to Jesus, he, he wanted to do what was right and was un, unable to? Or is he talking about his post-Christian experience? I've come to Jesus and I want to do what Jesus wants me to do, but I still find myself not doing it. That's a debate that fills books. And you can take one academic scholarly book on this passage and it will say he's talking about before Jesus and then pick up the next book. Just as credentialed, says so talking about after Jesus. I will tell you what I think by simply asking you a question. Let me ask those of you who are sure of your salvation. You know that you know that you know that you are in the hands of Jesus and that you have been wondrously and, and completely saved. Does the experience we've just described describe your current experience in fighting sin? It describes mine. I mean, not, it's not total war. I mean, Jesus in me is making my life more like his than it was 10 years ago. But it still kind of sounds like the battles I go through with sin. I want to please God. I want to avoid sin. I work to pursue a life of Christ living out his life in me. And yet still, in my life, after like 42 years... 44 years of following Jesus, sin still comes up. Maybe not as often as it used to, but it's still at work in me. I think Paul is talking to us about his experience, the greatest Christian who ever lived. I think he's talking to us about his experience in battling sin in his life. But it really doesn't matter which of those two things it is, if it's Paul talking about before Jesus or after Jesus. It really doesn't matter because the point that Paul is trying to prove is that our human nature is so ruined by sin that it is impossible to simply say, well, doggone it, I'm going to be obedient. And I'm going to defeat my struggle with sin. And then we eat the sandwich, 
And we take the drink and we buy the shiny thing. Or let's be honest, men go back to the website. Our women don't rebuff the flirtatious advance. Students act one way at home and church and another way at school. Sins at work in us, in this body. And we hate it. We absolutely hate it. Like Paul hated it. We can't obey our way out of sin. The law, the standards of God in the Bible are good, perfect reflections of the character of God, and we are bad. Redeemed, but still constantly weighed down by the pull of the sinful nature that exists in this flesh and bone body. But listen to me. We are not stuck. We are not defeated. Having admittedly painted a bleak, bleak picture of the enormity of the battle that all of us have with sin, Paul closes this way. First, he summarizes what he's been teaching since verse 7. Look at verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, in my body. So he says that even though my spirit has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, this body still carries the taint and the influence of Adam's sin, which he talked about back in Romans chapter 5. So he concludes saying this, Wretched man that I am. Note that he doesn't say wretched man that I used to be. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body tainted by sin, this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. The Spirit has redeemed my mind. I, I belong to God. But with my flesh, I still find that I serve the law. The body is part of the salvation process. We never think about it. We, we think about, well, I'm going to die or, or Jesus is going to come back and I'm going to get wings and I'm going to sit on a cloud and I'm going to play a harp and I'm scared of heights and not musical, so that doesn't sound good to me at all. But that's not what's going to happen. Our spirit, if we die before Jesus returns, will be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But at the final resurrection, we will get a new body that is free from the stain of Adam's sin. And this battle that has been described will be over for eternity. We end then, having just had a discussion 
that the law is better than we could have ever imagined because it's a reflection of God, and we are worse than we could have ever imagined because of sin, seeing that salvation is greater than we could ever imagine because our entire selves are being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And so, what are we to do? Are we to say, well, I guess I'm just going to have to wait for Jesus to come get me and blow off her battle with sin? Let me ask you something. Does it seem like Paul's blowing off his battle with sin? Of course not. We can experience victory in this life because Jesus does give us hints throughout our lives as we follow him that our entire self is being redeemed by his blood sacrifice and by his eternal resurrection. We experience victory over sin, but not because we say, I'm not going to eat the sandwich or take the drink or buy the shiny thing, but because we cling to the body of Jesus, the resurrected body of Jesus. And we remember the words of Paul, who says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus as your Lord, so walk in him. His life in me, lived out of me, begins to have a victory in this body over sin that I can never have by sake of my own willpower. And that is accomplished, that kind of connectedness and union with Jesus is accomplished not by occupying a pew for an hour on a Sunday morning, having different Sunday habits, by reading Scripture in the morning to check a box. It is accomplished as we pursue Jesus, as He speaks to us in His Word, as we pray, not, not uh, churchy-languaged prayers back to Him that don't make any sense, but as we speak to Him from our heart about the battles that we have and the victories that we have because of him and the joy that we have in serving him as we pursue Jesus as a real person who is alive in our lives, we get hints of what eternity is going to be like. And when eternity comes, the body's gone, a new body's there, and we are his forever and ever. I'm ready for that because I'm a jack wagon. I'm ready for that. But I don't have to live life hopelessly. Because I know what's coming, and I know the victory I can have now because Jesus is just that good. Let's pray.